Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. It's not really a, a football club unless it has that sense of consciousness that comes with a fan base, a strong fan base. Sport really is one of the most perfect narratives. When you're watching a game of football, for example, you aren't simply seeing a game unfold before your eyes. You're watching a moment decades in the making, steeped in history and politics, in good times and bad, made rich by a cast of heroes and villains. Sport can awaken all of your senses. There's the passionate rivalries, the anxiety of chance and jeopardy, the pride you feel for your team, your hopes for promotion, and the despair of defeat and relegation. Boxing commentator Mike Costello captured this sense of a world outside the match brilliantly in Series 2. It's about the emotion. It's about where the fight is going. It's not necessarily about the picture postcard left hook or the gorgeous uppercut. It's more about capturing the raw emotion of everybody on their feet at ringside and just bringing people to that moment at ringside and trying to get them to understand that the very next punch could be the last punch. And just listen to how cycling journalist Daniel Freeb spoke to us about the importance of location in cycling. You know, we love to tell the stories of great exploits, great defeats, great, you know, ignominy that's occurred in these locations, whether it be, you know, Mont Ventoux. I mean, it's it's mythology in a classic sense, but um, yeah, it's all part of the, um, the, the theatre and the pantomime, I suppose. On top of this, football fans are also drawn in by the personality of a football club, both on-field and off. Just as organisations like Apple, Google, Brewdog, and perhaps certainly the Conservative Party all instantly conjure images in your mind when you hear their names, well, a football club too has its own sense of persona. That's never been more apparent to me than in the debut book from today's guest, Terry DeFellon. Borussia Dortmund, a history in black and yellow, charts the course of one of Europe's most celebrated football clubs. It talks about classic games, classic seasons, highs and lows, and it reads as both a love letter to the club and to football in general. Chapter one of all the clubs in all the world. Terry's written about German football since 2006. He co-founded the long-running Yellow Wall Borussia Dortmund podcast. He's a regular panellist on the Talking Fussball podcast and the Sound of Football podcast, hosted by one of our previous guests, Graham Sibley. Speaking of which, do you remember what Graham told us in Series 1? Football clubs are, they're very, very weird. If you try to pin down someone's support for a football club, it's very difficult to find philosophically what they're actually in love with because so many things can change. I've always likened it to Trigger's broom in Only Fools and Horses, where he says to Rodney that he's had the same broom for 20 years, <laughs> only changed the head three times and the handle twice. Now, this begs a question. If it's hard to imagine why someone loves a football club from their own country, how do you reckon with the idea that Terry... A bloke from Croydon has found a deep passion for one an ocean away. My first experience of German football was Borussia Dortmund. I went on a stag do with a mutual friend of ours. It wasn't his stag do. It was a mutual friend of ours and Graham's. And uh, we went to Cologne 
and he organised tickets to football. This is in 2004. And to be honest with you, beyond watching the Champions League, I didn't really see much beyond English football. Crystal Palace is my club and I and I watched non-league football a bit, but I was really all about the English football. And the experience of going to see Borussia Dortmund completely blew my mind. 80,000 capacity stadium. You could drink beer in the stadium. There were terraces. There's a huge terrace. It's massive. 20,000 capacity terrace at one end of the ground. Such a wall of noise. Unbelievable. I could barely watch the football because I was just so distracted by what was going on around the stadium. And it completely blew my mind and changed the way that I looked uh, at football completely. Following day, we went to see Schalke, who are Dortmund's bitterest rivals. And the experience was entirely, entirely different. Dortmund was uplifting and positive and happy. Schalke were just miserable. They were utterly miserable. They were obviously at a point in their histories where, you know, I don't know, maybe just Schalke were just feeling a bit bad about themselves. And yet, actually, technically speaking, they were in a better position than Dortmund, but Dortmund weren't. Anyway, just a snapshot of that. And that kind of has informed my understanding of the relationship between, between Dortmund and Schalke. So with that in mind, I went home. I was already writing about football. I was writing satire at the time with our mutual friend Graham Sibley, and who's been a guest on your podcast, and started to pivot towards writing about German football. I used to write a newsletter to friends. They then turned into blogs, which then turned into podcasts. I picked up a bit of commercial work, and I started writing about German football in English language when there was only a handful of people doing it. There was me, there was a geezer called Jan, who was writing for the Offside blog in the United States. There was Raphael Honigstein, and then there was Rudi Hesse. And, and that was almost all there was. That's obviously grown massively now. But I was able to sort of piggyback on the sort of sudden surge in popularity of German football in English-speaking markets and became, for a while, quite well-known. And through all of that was Dortmund. They became my German club, and I developed a, a love for them that was almost as strong as, as, as it is for Crystal Palace. In the second series of the podcast, I interviewed a guy called Professor Richard Bell, who'd written a book about slavery. And one of the things he said was that there are several gaps in the documentation that lead you to have to make fairly informed conclusions about what may or may not have happened. Dotted throughout your book are references to the fact that we don't know who scored the goal. We don't necessarily know who started the game. How much did you find was missing when you started to to dig back into this because quite simply records weren't kept in the same way that they are now were they yeah i mean certainly a lot of the stuff the the pre-first world war stuff where the documentation is yeah just not going to be well put together because like i guess you're thinking at the time or why we're not you don't understand the legacy that you're creating you don't necessarily understand that you're creating something that people are going to be writing about in different languages a hundred years later. You're just a bunch of guys who are there to play football. Why would you doc? Why on earth would you document that? I mean, when did we ever take records of whenever I went and played five-a-side football? I'm sure you're the same, Mark. Yeah, why would you? And then, of course, there's the consideration of the interwar years as well, where the country was generally speaking in in something of a of a turmoil for various reasons, and so records may well have been have been lost. I mean, I've been fortunate to be able to work off the backs to a degree of, of other historians, of course, who have already done the work. <laughs> and so I was able to, to utilise that. I mean, I, I read that and was aware of that. I didn't necessarily, it wasn't necessary for me to go digging into primary sources so much because 
that work had been done and I was researching it from afar. So it was it was a somewhat different approach. In a way, it's kind of surprising that these records are still kept because it's just football. But after a while, you, you reach a point, I think probably for Dortmund, it might not have even actually been until after the war, the Second World War, which is when Dortmund became properly good, decent professional, national champions, national following and stuff like that. When suddenly the and the idea of a fan base emerging rather than necessarily just like a a recreational activity to being something more than that, and then suddenly everything changes. I always come at this from the the starting point of it's just football, and I very quickly conclude that it it, it isn't. It's like I always hold up um, the very best films that have sport in them are not about the sport. Rocky's not about boxing. It's not just football and it's not just a football club. That's the, the sense I get from, from this. This is deeply rooted in, in that part of Germany. It's gone through many, many iterations to get to be the club that we know now in, in terms of yellow and black. I didn't appreciate how much almost mergers and acquisitions activity went on in the early years of German football, when teams merged together, you had lots of clubs joining forces to be, I guess, I don't know, stronger together. But when a club like Borussia Dortmund wins, it's a huge celebration. When it loses, it has a marked impact on the local community as it does anywhere. So in a way, it's I, it, it's not just football, is it? It's not just a football club. This is an institution that means something to society in that part of Germany. Yeah, and this is something that that I try to get to bring across in the book, but at the same time, on a very basic level, it is about results. I think that if you don't play the football, if you don't have the results, then then you don't grow that consciousness that grows around the football club just isn't there. But at the same time, I think also if a community is suffering, if the community is having a bad time, it's suffered tragedy or if it's having economic downturn, then of course that in turn affects how the football is played because there's less money going into the club. They're not able to pay for the for the best players or they lose their best players. But the essence of a football club is still very much the, the football. That's its, its genesis and it has to be there without it. But it, it, it isn't a club. It's not really a, a football club unless it has that sense of consciousness that comes with a fan base, a strong fan base that's tied to its community, either by location or on a more spiritual or emotional, cultural or maybe political level, and particularly with overseas fans. An increasing number of people who support football clubs who have never been to the place of the club that they support. Loads of Man United supporters, for example, We've never been to Manchester. It's a common refrain, isn't it, Mark? <laughs> but I hesitate to, over in the past, I would have, you know, poured scorn on on those people. And and this is obviously as a consequence of my love for Borussia Dortmund has helped to be sort of come to a view. So well, hang on a second. These are people who are so invested in this club that they will follow it from thousands of miles away. I mean, and, and really follow it. And I'm not just talking about angry people on Twitter. Who are, unha- who are unhappy because yeah, Manchester United haven't, you know, haven't signed Jaden Sancho yet. You know, I'm talking about people who are deeply emotionally connected to that club over that over that distance and that time. And it's extraordinary how football clubs have that power to be able to do that. But at the heart of it is the beauty of the game itself. It's just such a compelling spectacle. 
I'd love to get your thoughts on the structure of the book. You've not used a chronological narrative here. It doesn't unfold in the order that it unfolded in in real life. Was that a deliberate choice? And the reason I ask that is because to me, it reads, it has a very modern, fresh slant on writing the history of a sporting institution. It is very much in the wheelhouse of a lot of screen documentaries that you see, particularly Netflix's most famous one on, on the Chicago Bulls that came out during lockdown. It strikes me as a story that you are telling in a fractured, non-linear narrative, but you're linking the sections thematically so that it doesn't matter what order you tell the story in. Is that something that was set in stone from the start or did that evolve as you started writing? No, it evolved. I wrote most of this book in an almost constant state of blind panic. And I can't say with all, all honesty that, that I, I did have a plan when I started it out, but it, it went to pieces shortly after, after I began actually writing it. And a, a lot of this is because of the, I think the barriers, thinking back on it now, and, and it's the first time I really had the opportunity to think back on this book since before it was published, Mark, because no one's ever asked me these questions. And, and so it's sort of formulating in my mind. I think a lot of it was because it's my first book. I'm working in a language that I'm, I'm not familiar with, and I'm getting my research and my information in a really haphazard way, I think, as a consequence. I think the Terry who did his master's degree and did his bachelor's degree would be appalled at the approach that I took to researching this book. And I think a lot of that is because when I was just like constantly battling anxieties that I, that it wasn't going to be any good. And also I was battling, you know, the, the, the limitations of, of researching a subject in a, in a different language. And that's how the research came out. And I think that that's generally speaking how the book came out. I mean, I, the first chapter I wrote was the 1966 Cup Winners' Cup, that chapter. That was the first chapter that I finished. And so I did dot around quite a lot. But I wouldn't go so far as to say that this was some, I wasn't making a statement about how to write a book or how I think this is the right way to write this book. I just did it just because that's just how, that was the direction that it took. And I'm gratified by, by what you say, because it's a deliberate thing while at the same time happening, I think, by accident. And I, I wouldn't want to make any pretensions that I'm trying to revolutionise narratives and stuff like that. Chapter two, a lesson for each of us. As writers, we need to separate our own view of what we can learn about narrative from our own personal interests. To expand our understanding of narrative, we need to see how life unfolds in as many different environments as possible. I've said this before, but I believe that writers should be mandated to watch programmes like Love Island, to know the latest specials menu at McDonald's or Nando's, to study the makeup, for example, of Gareth Southgate's England football squad, the perfect depiction of modern multicultural Britain. If you stay too long in the spaces that you know well, you can become comfortable and complacent and you can stop learning. Because of this, I truly believe that whether you love football or hate it, you can learn so much from this episode and from Terry's book. For example, one of the things that struck me early on is the role that the church played in the development of professional football in Germany, and in particular, a very famous altercation that eventually would give rise to Borussia Dortmund. Yeah, I mean, just to, worth bearing in mind, it wasn't professional football, of course. And indeed, this, again, is kind of at the heart of it as well, was that, was that 
the church certainly would not have approved of, of professionalizing the sport. But it is probably worth saying that German, I suspect German society was not ready for professionalized football at that time in their history anyway. German sports was more about gymnastics and stuff like that. Uh, there's a lot of gymnastic references in German football clubs. And a lot of the clubs that have years in their names, like, for example, 1899 Hoffenheim or 1860 Munich, that doesn't refer to the time with which their football club was started. It's when the sports club of which they are part was founded. Their football divisions didn't start until quite quite a bit later. But the Catholic Church conception or the church's conception of football was that it was supposed to be a method of spiritual improvement and it was managed by the church and run by the church and quite jealously so as well but yes but but the idea was was using football in order to improve the body and mind through god and and to improve the body and mind in in relation to god that's certainly my understanding my, my, and i'm i'm using i'm using 21st century language to talk about a a, a twen- an early 20th century state of mind so so that the words that i'm using probably don't necessarily relate to the mindset at the time but i think that that's not an unreasonable way of of looking at it but then there was an emerging strand of of working people who had become unionized they had wages they had money they had spare money and they had time they had you know an afternoon off a week or, or the concept of the weekend was emerging and the concept of of leisure was working the idea of the of the worker having leisure you know, it's amazing to think of that this is actually still a relatively recent concept in our in our history. <laughs> you know, the idea of working people having leisure time, and they wanted to use that leisure time to you know do what what many many people have done some subsequent to that, and that is to play football and drink beer. And this is the reason why Borussia was formed, and it was formed in a pub in Borsigplatz against the wishes of the local church. Yeah guy called Hubert Duvelt, who, who forbade uh, any outside activity or organisation of football clubs or football matches, you know, outside of the scope of the church. And they went behind his back and they, they had a meeting and they went to set it up and they had a few beers. And then Duvelt, Father Duvelt came running along, cycling along on his bike to try and put a stop to it. And then there was an altercation in the stairway of the of the pub by with him and Franz Jacobi and and. and he was sent on his way, and it's used as a kind of metaphor, if you like, of uh, of modern football, of of, prof- of football in Germany, you know, expelling the church from its involvement. And it's it's obviously a, a symbol, if you like, of of that change. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that everything changed after that moment. That's ridiculous, but it, but it's a tremendously powerful narrative, uh, and and it's very much part of Dortmund's Borussia Dortmund's origin story. Could I ask you one? Question, if I may, just because we've talked about Borussia Dortmund uh, predominantly as a as a male football club. If you turn the television on at the weekend, you're very very likely to see during the day a women's football match on the BBC, which is great to see. The growth of the women's game is pretty unstoppable at the moment. I know you've been to an international tournament of women's football. This is not a fad, is it? This is growing into something very very significant, and that's long overdue and I, and I guess it's not really a question it's a statement but please let it continue I think we want more of it don't we oh yeah no definitely I mean it's it's refreshing to see to, to see the game grow in this way it's good to see the standard continues to grow as well and that's what happens with professionalization 
a lot of people, I think a lot of a lot of blokes tend to look at it and sometimes will look at the standard and the quality and feel that it's not up to the same standard as the, the men's professional game. But, you know, I'm sure if the men had been banned from playing football for 60 years, then that would have had an effect on their development too. There's it's also than... not the same game, is it? That's, you know, so we can't... No. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's played by the. It's obviously played by the same same rules, but it is the same code. But I think if you watch enough of it, you'll come to the conclusion that it is moving into a different direction. It's becoming quite different. People say the same thing about men and women's tennis, don't they? That there's there's that there's differences in the man, in the manner with which that 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 is played. Dortmund have only just started a women's team, and it was something that they were criticised heavily for for not having a women's club. And they said, oh, we, we, we have no tradition of women's football. We've got a women's handball team, which is a very good handball team. And that's all we need to do. But finally, they relented and, and they launched their women's team this season. And they're doing, they're doing extremely well. But I think that there are opportunities for some of us maybe who become a little bit disenchanted with some of the excesses of the men's game, that there's an opportunity for us to perhaps sort of like seek a, perhaps a degree of purity you know dare I say you know in the women's game but at the same time I think that that can be you can you can fall into the trap of patronizing the women's game by by looking at it in that way it is a sport as you say and it's developing a culture in its own right and I hope that it's given the license to be able to do that I have minor concerns about the fact that they're wedded too much to the men's clubs I would have I think in an ideal world they would carve their own identity out but that's incredibly difficult to do and you have to be realistic and there's so much wisdom and experience and money and pedigree that you can get from a men's professional club by by allying to them that you'd be kind of daft not to not to do it so i i there is a perhaps a concern that the game the men's games excesses may drift into the women's game but that's very much for them to decide and that's the glory of being a spectator is that you get to you get to sit and, and watch that. And the women's Euros are in England this summer. And I'm very much looking forward to, to seeing it, not just England, but but other teams as well. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say about Gareth Southgate's England. I mean, uh, the, the England women's team, although has had some controversies in fairly recent years, when I look at them, when I watch them play and with the commitment that they play and the embodiment of English sporting values, and I appreciate there may well be people from around the world who, who look at English sporting values and may see something completely different. But from our point of view, we, we, we have a, this sense of justice and fair play. And I think, you know, they're very good at projecting that, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But it feels, it feels like we're getting in both of our national teams, the English are seeing the best of themselves. And we obviously, you know what difficult controversial times we're living in now brexit and covid and culture wars and stuff like that and how divided we are but and it's nice and refreshing to see that actually our football teams both male and female reflect the best of us which is really nice and reassuring to see chapter three out in the wild No matter how many times you do it releasing a book into the wild puts you in a deeply vulnerable position it certainly does for me. Once it's out there in the world, anyone can say anything about it. People can and will interpret it in their own way, good or bad. It's a juggernaut that cannot be stopped. 
Over the course of this series, we're going to hear from many debut novelists, people who are likely to be hit hardest by this visceral feeling of nervous anticipation and anxiety. So I wanted to know, how's Terry coping? When people were kind enough to tweet pictures of them receiving the book, that was a very warm feeling. I had an exchange with a a guy, a chap called Ryan Hubbard, who I interviewed in the book. He's a Polish football expert who'd written a book, which I, I got for Christmas and I tweeted it and said Ooh. and he said are you, you know, I'm about to explain how what a wonderful feeling that is to see but of course you know that by now that part of it has been wonderful particularly on Christmas Eve I was seeing pictures of people saying oh early Christmas present uh, so nice but to counterbalance that unfortunately is just the, the extraordinary amount of fear I have about and trepidation about how the book is going to be received whether people will like it for one thing whether people will think it's any good, whether it actually does the job. I worry about how many mistakes are in the book, how many inaccuracies are in the book. Obviously, I I got it fact-checked and it's been proofread to within an inch of its life, but as you'd expect through the publishing process. I also, I think I worry probably mostly about the authenticity from the point of view of an actual Dortmunder or from, shall I say, a lifelong Dortmund fan who might read the book and say, This is an accurate account of what happened, but the tone, the emphasis is wrong. (laughs) Um, It's that's not how it and 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 then I then have to then ask myself is, is that actually a good thing or a bad thing? Because I'm writing it from the perspective as an of an overseas fan. And and I struggled all the way through the years that I was writing it, asking myself whether or not this was my story to tell and whether or not I was appropriating. Now, either the book's done, it's published, and it's out there, and I'm absolutely delighted. And so all of these anxieties that I had, I obviously managed to deal with because otherwise the book would not have been written because you don't need an excuse to walk away from a book. They're really, really hard things to do, and I would never, ever blame anyone from walking away from a book because if their heart's not in it, then they should absolutely walk away from it because it's a waste of time. I'm proud to say that I am an author. I wanted to be an author since I was a child. And I've done it and I feel intensely proud and I have that intense feeling of having fulfilled a lifelong ambition. But there, but I'm also carrying that anxiety that I suspect any writer, and I'm gratified, I'm, I'm heartened by what you say, Mark, in that, you know, it's not something that we face alone. But I've read accounts from other writers and, you know, who have these same anxieties and it's no different for me. Well, I mean, throughout Series 4, we are talking to a number of debut novelists not just in non-fiction but in but in fiction and the same themes keep coming out and I think that the audience for this show are predominantly people that would like to be in your position not not as a guest on this podcast but as a published writer and that really is why this show exists it's to help people understand that these feelings are entirely natural everybody has them and in a way the first time you go through it, as bizarre as this may sound, it's easier than it ever gets. Because if you write again, then you know all this. You're currently learning this. Whereas when you get onto book two, you know all this. There's a weight of expectation. You want it to be better. You're perhaps not given as much leeway as you would be as an established novelist. And that can have a crippling impact on people. And there are interviews coming out in this series that that allude to that. But in terms of history, I think it's really interesting to point out that it is essentially a history 
it very clearly says that on the front of the book. I'm looking at it now. It says a history. It's not the history, the definitive history. It's not a series of facts. It is a history written by an overseas fan of a football club who hadn't really heard that much about them before 2004. That immediately frames the narrative and people will be perfectly entitled to disagree with that. And they should feel that they, if they want to, can go and write their own damn history of Borussia Dortmund football <laughs> club, which I will happily buy and happily compare it to this. But this is your history, and I, and I think that that really is an important one. It's really, it's like reviews, good or bad, think about it for 24 hours and then let it go. Because if not, that's the easiest way to an ulcer. You know, it's, it doesn't matter. The value of a piece of art is whether it finds an audience, not how big the audience is or not how much they paid for it or not how it gets there. This will find a very large audience because the fan base for football narratives is very large. We can see that out there on the internet, particularly German football and particularly Borussia Dortmund. I think it's going to find a big audience. And I don't like the term niche because I, I, I worry that that degrades it. I wouldn't necessarily like to think that the things I'm interested in would be described as niche because to me they're everything to me they're incredibly important but on what happens next so this is out there it's done but what happens next are you doing anything else or are you taking a well-deserved breather before you commit to the hell that is writing another book well I'm I'm working on a project with two other guys to write a a book uh 50 players that influenced the Bundesliga I only have to write 17 pieces. And so that is probably a different kind of challenge. That shouldn't be, they're effectively profiles of individual football players. And because it's the three of us, there's no, there's no narrative, if you like, necessarily going through there, uh, unless it's any narrative that's kind of brought together by the, by the reader. So that's what I'm working on very, very, very slowly at the moment. Whether or not I will actually write another book again is still pretty much up in the air because you have to ask yourself whether or not it's something that you can commit to. I was in a fortunate position to be able to go part-time while I was writing the book. Uh, I don't work for the company anymore. My job's changed. I've got what passes for a career now. And I don't know whether or not I've got the time <laughs> to write to write a book. But I would, I, in principle, I would dearly love to but you have to, again, you have to approach it with total belief and commitment. And so I have to come up with something that I would want to write about that I would be willing to, to go through, through this again. Writing is actually the only thing that I'm probably actually any genuinely, genuinely good at. Uh, there's a whole number of things that I can do quite well, but I never learned a trade. And I feel that writing is, is kind of my trade. So as such, I should do it and should try and, and keep doing it, not out of any broader sort of like vain sense of, 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 of satisfying the, the needs of my public, but more because it's what I do. And, and so therefore, I should do it because it makes me feel happier when I do it. Well, I mean, one of those writers that cannot be asked to do any writing, and then feel amazing when I've finished something. And it's really, really annoying. It's like eating a salad, can't stand them. But I feel much, much better after having eaten one. <laughs> Borussia Dortmund, a history in black and yellow is out now. If you are in any way a fan of football or football history, then I would urge you to read it. If you're a fan of how to tell 
a non-fiction story in an incredibly literary manner. I think you could learn a lot from it. Terry DeFellin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. The pleasure and the honour has been mine, Mark. Thank you so much. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Terry DeFellin for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Football isn't just a game. For some, it's a way of life. Terry's book plunged me into a world I knew little about. I've heard of Borussia Dortmund, of course, and I've seen them play on television. But the book made me think about the city, the people, the fans, the rivalries. Just because you write non-fiction, that doesn't mean you can't be literary. Attempt to capture football's sense of jeopardy and hope in your writing. The two run so seamlessly alongside each other and are vital aspects of keeping an audience gripped. Can you try to recreate that, if only we could just... moment? Terry came to discover the club, not as a boy growing up, but as an adult with a home club already of his own. This discovery changed the course of his entire life. Without littering your writing with chance encounters, how might you use a one-off like this for a character in your story? Accuracy is always important, but simply being accurate won't necessarily mean your writing is perfect. You also need to capture the right tone and sense of emotion that both captures your own experiences while doing justice to your audience. There's a difference between writing the history and writing a history. Not every rabbit hole needs to be explored. Sometimes you can lay a trail of breadcrumbs for your reader. And finally, keep tabs on every milestone you achieve, every small victory. You won't always fully understand the legacy you're creating. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 